1: I am really looking forward to this episode today with our guest, Heidi, because we're going to touch upon a subject matter that I'm still learning a lot about as a cisgendered straight woman who did not grow up having a ton of awareness or like, I guess the deeper awareness about inclusion and gender equity and all of these things that have been coming up now and helping me recognize a lot of my ignorance. I was fortunate to grow up with a family and friends that were very inclusive-minded, if that's a phrase, but I guess it just didn't occur to me until recently how little I knew. And one thing that I'm really excited to start off with, Heidi, is pronouns. This is something that I'm I'm trying to be more mindful of, but Honestly, I feel a little unsure about like what exactly it means I suppose. So we asked you before we started recording today what your pronouns were and you have you told us but you also have this listed on your website as she they. And the they and them pronouns I find a bit confusing. So I would love to start off with clarity on that cuz I imagine I'm not the only one that feels confused by it if you identify as I guess binary would be the term. Is they, them considered non-binary? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And
0: so my name is Heidi. I use she, they pronouns and I'm based in Madison, Wisconsin. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I focus on gender equity and LGBTQ plus inclusion in the workplace and help individuals become better allies. And so in terms of pronouns, right, we use the binary terms. she he on a daily basis. When it comes to they, them, we think we don't use them, but we do. You know, if we think that maybe you're starting a new job, you don't know who was hired and, oh, Jay just hired a new accountant. What's their name? We don't know whether, you know, how they identify maybe they are non-binary, maybe they are male, female, but when we think about gender, we typically think in binary terms. The reason I use she, they pronouns is both from a gender fluidity standpoint. Sometimes I may feel more feminine. Sometimes I just don't really want to identify how I feel in the moment. And then you know, also standing in, in solidarity and and making sure that individuals feel seen and heard by me sharing my pronouns, it helps to in, you know other individuals to be able to open up and share their pronouns, and also know that hey, it's okay. I see you. I hear you. I want to empower you as well to share your pronouns in the situation. Just last night, I was at a an event of large chamber event, almost like, I don't know, over 500 people, I'm sure. And I had kept saying, hey, we need to put pronouns on event name tags. Because these are things that people don't think about. You go to an event, you have your name and your company printed on your your name tag, but you don't think about pronouns. And, you know, either people can opt in and put a sticker on there, I typically, if no sticker is offered, I will write in my pronouns so that it becomes visible to people that, hey, this is a need, this is a want. And regardless if you're within the LGBTQ community or not, it's important to bring visibility to pronouns. Even if you think about it from a gender neutral name, You know, I have friends that, you know, might work in banking and when their name comes across as like Alex, that could go either way. And so not to make assumptions and we make a lot of assumptions, right. In life. And it just takes practice. You know, people will say, well, I'm really uncomfortable using those pronouns or I'm not really sure, but Honestly, we're not here to make you comfortable. <laughs> we're here to make us comfortable and individuals that, you know, use they, them pronouns. And she, he, they are not the only pronouns. And I'm still learning about all of the different pronouns, even from, you know, a Latinx perspective, L and Ella or Aya and Z, Zer, all of these different. Pronouns and I am still learning, right? I mean, the whole diversity, equity, inclusion, justice is an evolution of learning. You're constantly revisiting this state of awareness and this desire to learn. And, you know, once you get pronouns down, there's something else to learn. And you're constantly learning about different communities, which, you know, really is what an inclusive leader is.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for articulating it that way because it it makes a lot of sense and it it feels exciting to me and it's very new at the same time and I remember when I decided and I I think of of it a bit like allyship I suppose but I'm, I'm not quite sure because it's like feels awkward to me again being cisgendered and like never feeling like I needed to think about it. Like I just assumed people knew that I was a she, her, right. And I remember the first time I started using or clarifying that on social media, somebody actually asked me kindly and openly, like, why are you putting that? You know, why do you need feel the need to state that? And I remember thinking, well, that's part of my way of being an ally and supporting people who really want to lead with that and don't feel like People perceive them in the way that they want to be perceived, if that's making sense. Whereas for me, no one's ever called me a a he, him. I've always been called a she, her. Maybe a they, them, to your point, Heidi, which I love. I love that explanation of how we just will naturally use those terms. I find myself doing that all the time. And that's really helped me better understand this. And also this conversation, especially with you talking about the fluidity, Heidi, and this, like, again, it it really helped me make more sense of this to think that some people don't always identify with one way or another. And Jason, actually, that made me question if you fully feel like a he, him, because we've never talked about this together, but Jason's spoken really frequently about how people perceive his gender and his sexuality. And I'm curious, Jason, have you felt like he, him are the right pronouns for you? And would you would you feel more comfortable being a they, them sometimes so that you could feel more fluid or not?
2: That's a really good question. I currently do feel aligned with he him i have that on you know my instagram and my linkedin profiles and i do feel aligned with that the one thing to your point though is i you know the terminology i kind of landed on was i feel energetically androgynous like how do i even explain this i don't feel physically androgynous in a sense like i feel like i'm physically embodied in a masculine body in my own perception of that. But energetically, I do feel very fluid. And I do feel my partner Laura, you know, she has this comment she makes pretty often. She's like, well, you know, you're a large percentage of you is really feminine. And that's why I think this works. My my girlfriend is bisexual. And when we first started dating, she's like, you have so many wonderful feminine qualities about you. And I said, Yeah, I just I feel energetically androgynous. I feel like I continue to identify and cultivate and this is an interesting thing what I'm about to say. I don't necessarily align with this what I'm about to say. I feel like there are these prototypical like masculine traits that we've put in a bucket like well that, you know, being demonstrative and decision making and being, you know, aggressive and going for what you want and holding like all that's the masculine bucket. And the female bucket is like nurturing and caring and loving and and to me, I don't feel like those buckets necessarily need to even exist. And I'm not sure how relevant they are anymore. If we talk about this binariness, it's like, oh, you have these traits, so you're masculine and you have these traits, so you're feminine. But for me, I feel like if there is a middle, I'm in this kind of nebulous, like, well, I have all those traits. So I guess I just feel very androgynous in that way. So the long answer is I identify with he, him, but energetically, I feel, yeah, I feel like I embody all of the traits. And I'm not sure that I even have a word for that. And maybe energetic androgyny will also evolve, but that's the terminology I use right now. I don't know if anyone else uses that term.
0: I love that, Jason. And thank you for sharing everything about yourself and your partner and for using the term partner because, right, our words matter and evolve and change. Yeah, I love that because, right, While I may, I mean, I am female, I'm cisgender and present as female and probably present more feminine, I love that like energy portion of it is I'm not really like, you know, your stereotypical like feminine woman. I you know don't get my nails done. I'm not, it takes me like five minutes to get ready. And, you know, eyeliner is my staple and, you know, and t-shirt and jeans. Like I don't wear dresses and get dressed up. And, and so I love that like androgynous energy that you were referring to. And yeah, I love that. And I love... I'm always on the word, the like evolution of words and language changing. And so if you follow me on LinkedIn, I'm doing a lot of education around what our words matter, like how language evolves and changes, and how we really have to be mindful of the words that we're using in the workplace. And right, whatever we do in the workplace carries over into our family, communities, and vice versa. I mean, it's this this huge bridge of how can we be more inclusive in life, right? And just going back to like the masculine, feminine characteristics, right? We're taught that that's why gender is taught like to a binary, because like when you're little and you are a little girl or assigned female, you're given Barbies and dolls and, you know, girls are, are taught from a young age to compete with one another who has the best this, and you have, you have the prettier hair and I want to look like this and looking at media and all of this. I mean, even in the eighties when I was born and then men, you know, boys are taught, get up. It's okay. No, don't cry. You know, don't be weak. You know, all of these like, Quote unquote, what's meant to be feminine. I remember when my son, who's now 13, when he was younger, uh, it was probably five years ago. So he was seven, what? I can't do my math, like eight, five, yeah, eight. (laughs) And he was unloading the dishwasher. My daughter, who was probably like four at the time, comes over and wants to help. And he's like, no, this is a man's job. (laughs) And like pushes her away. I'm like, Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's you know, joking, but right, he the examples that we are putting out in our home is there are no gender roles in our home and that we are family and we do things that this is our house and our home and our family. we do things that take care of each other, regardless of who you are, what your role is, or how you identify like,
1: I love that. And I also really encourage, if you're just listening to this podcast episode, to watch the YouTube version. Cause I love your background, Heidi, which says diverse, inclusive, accepting, welcoming, safe space for everyone. And just those words are very comforting to me because I am such a big believer in inclusivity. But as I mentioned, I've had the privilege in a lot of ways of, being straight and cisgendered, and not even have to like think about it. Like, I've always felt included in some specific ways that now I'm recognizing that not everybody feels included. And I also grew up, like I said, very liberal and open minded and curious and loving, and assumed other people were that way too. And one thing that I find continuously fascinating, but also heartbreaking, is that you know, to put up a poster like that in your background, to me, it's like, well, obviously everyone's included and accepted and welcome, and this is safe. But just that being there shows that it's not actually that case everywhere you go. You know, and this is part of the reason too, I feel like the pronouns are so important. It's like, you're indicating that you're an ally and you're, you want to everyone to feel like they are, not only safe and included, but like really being seen for their full selves and their real self. They don't have to like force themselves into a role to your point that they don't feel like they fit into. And without having that perspective personally, I'm trying to listen more about the experiences that other people are having. And I also wanted to point out your shirt, Heidi, what does it say? Visibility? It says visibility is life. And what does that mean? So it was
0: actually from a conference talk that I did on being queer in the workplace. And it was a parent and family LGBTQ plus conference. And a friend of mine and I talked about coming out in the workplace, coming out in life, what you know families are made up of all different kinds of people and structures and right what might be normal to you is not normal to me or vice versa and we all get to define what our normal is in life and right it's i, th- I think we're taught from a young age that you grow up you find an opposite gender spouse you go to college and you get a job and a white picket fence and two and a half kids and a dog. And, you know, and that's the way it works. And that is not how it works for many people. And that is okay. I can say if I ever had a billboard, it would read life is not linear. And, you know, it would <laughs> rainbows and glitter everywhere. <laughs> right. And Whitney, to your point of you know, showing up authentically, you know, I would encourage listeners to really think like when you're at work and you are displaying photos of your family, do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about that? Someone looking at your photos, if you're cisgender straight, you know, family, what society tells us is normal think about, do you ever get questioned? Oh, is that your brother? You know? Or, oh, those must be your nieces and nephews and your brother. No, no. Nobody says to you, when did you discover that you were straight? You know? So if you start flipping the script a little bit and start questioning, can I really show up? When people ask you, what'd you do this weekend? And if you can say, oh, my husband and I, we went out with the kids and yada, yada. If I show up and say, well, actually... My two partners and my two children, who we all live under one house, we, you know, people would like be taken back, not to know what to do, and then start asking layer upon layer of questions. And, oh, oh, I didn't, what, what? You know, and it, you know, it immediately goes to this spot of questioning someone within the LGBTQ plus community that you would never ask those same questions of straight people, you know? And so it's things that when we have a sense of privilege, whether it be that we're cis, whether we're white, whether we come from an affluent background, we all have some level of privilege. We all have a sphere of influence. And it's how we take that and really elevate voices and empower individuals that may have had their voice turned off or lessened? And how can we amplify that even more to be a stronger ally to all different kinds of people and and individuals? Because, right, we're not one identity, we are layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And I think that is when we talk about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, belonging, that we need to realize the intersectional lens, that we need to be able to recognize all of the different things that both you can see on an individual, but things that you can't see. And you know, when I when I talk to clients and do my coaching and, and co-learning opportunities. I use the example of like, just take parental status, for example, it's one little box that like you can't see unless somebody tells you what their parental status is. So you have single parents and double parent households. You have multi-generational households. You have foster parents, adoptive parents, parents who have lost a child, grandparents raising their children, you know, so many different layers, same sex partner, poly households, whatever the case is there's so many different layers and you don't know the background and the story and the experiences that someone is bringing in to your community organization your workplace your your nonprofit wherever you are and those experiences are shaping everything that they're bringing to that workplace or whatever environment you're in and so you know i think one one thing and that takes me back to like when you think about like what is an inclusive leader and how can you be an inclusive leader or an inclusive ally person, right? Because people think leader equals manager. You can be a leader in whatever you do in life. You do not need to be in a corporate setting, C-suite, corner office, you know, but it's that continuous like learning and evolving and having the conversation to be that inclusive leader. And the three things that I say, empathy, self-reflection, and self-awareness. And those are crucial, crucial characteristics to being an inclusive leader in whatever environment, whatever situation you're in.
1: Yes. I love that. And a follow-up question, Jason's eager to ask too. So I'm actually gonna pass it back to to you, Jason, with something that came up while listening to that part And also going back to the word assumptions, Heidi, when you brought that up, I thought about how many times people have assumed that Jason was gay. I mean, it's come up so much in your life, Jason, where it's like almost the opposite of what you're saying, Heidi, because that can happen on both sides is either you assume someone's straight or you assume based on some characteristic of them that they're gay or any of these other things that we have based on like whatever mold or like box we want to put someone in based on the things that we've learned and our ignorances and all of that. And it's so fascinating because it also comes back to those labels, right? And this like desire or conditioning more so that we have of like, we have to put someone in a box, if they seem this way they must be that way and if they're not that way we're really confused and perplexed by it and i've noticed that so much jason so i'm curious like how that's impacted you and i know that you you feel very comfortable just kind of educating people and like no i'm a straight man but again with the fluidity too that comes in like i don't i mean you've talked about your sexuality on some past episodes Where you mainly feel attracted to women and you've experimented with men as well. But how do you feel about those assumptions that come up for you? Like, do they truly not bother you? Or is there a level of like frustration or discomfort there that like you're just so used to having that you feel like it doesn't bother you, if that makes sense?
2: Well, it's a nuanced answer, right? And I think it's nuanced because I think that human beings, neurologically and through Thousands of years of evolution, I think people want to feel safe. And if they have the ability to quickly identify, categorize, put things in a box, then they have a context to engage safely with you, right? Oh, well, you know, he listens to Queen and show tunes and he has a house full of cats. He must be gay. Okay. He paints his nails sometimes. He must be homosexual. Like, I understand that what people are attempting to do without them even realizing they're doing it is here's a box and a container to put you in. Oh, it's safe to engage with you now. I understand what's happening to your point, Whitney. If that box or that assumption gets shattered, then they're like, oh, where's the context? Wait, what do I call you? It, it freaks people out. So for me, I've never been bothered by people assuming that I'm gay. I've never had an issue people assuming I'm queer. I've never had an issue with people, you know, assuming that I'm 100% white because I, a large portion of my genetic heritage is Latinx and Puerto Rican and I'm Spanish. People don't, and I understand I'm white presenting. They're like, oh, Jason Robell, he's a white guy. I'm like, yes, I partially, but not fully. And so sometimes those assumptions bother me in the sense that people are so quick to just shove you in this corner and be like, that's what you are. And it's like, If you were to ask me with curiosity, I would tell you that that's only part of the picture. That's a very, very slim part of who I am as a being. But it is interesting, you know, last year before I crashed my motorcycle, a friend of a friend made a comment to me, something like, we were talking about music and I was talking about like punk rock and heavy metal and riding motorcycles. And they were like, wow, they said something like, I never pegged you for that dude. I was like, You never pegged me for that. What does that mean? They're like, well, we thought you were gay because, you know, again, you have cats and blah and this and that. And they gave me all these reasons. But you listen to metal and punk rock and you drive a motorcycle and I could see them being like we this does not compute. What do we say? I'm like, good. Don't put me in a box. You don't have a terminology for me. That's great. Good. And I think this goes back to a question. Whitney, thank you for for asking this that I want to loop back to Heidi is and I guess this is a question for all of us is. Do people have this tendency to want to box things, binary, this or that, A, because of cultural and familial conditioning for God knows how many thousands of years, or is there a deeper, potentially more insidious reason for this in the sense of, You know, if it's easy to shove people in boxes and this or that, maybe it's easier to control people. Maybe it's easier to have society be in neat little packages because this is what we say you are and you've just accepted it. You've never questioned it. I wonder how many people out there, and I'm sure there's a lot of people just breaking through these categories and these barriers and these titles and going, I don't identify with that anymore. And maybe I don't even know what I am. Because maybe there's not a terminology, to your point, Heidi, about the evolution of language. Like, maybe I don't have a label for it. That's how I feel sometimes. Sometimes I look at the language that's available and I'm like, eh, that's close, but not exactly correct. And maybe it's like, maybe people feel threatened, you know? And I'm curious with your work, Heidi, when you talk to your clients and the companies, do you get a sense that people are freaked out or threatened by this evolution of humanity because it's easier to understand and control and marginalize people if we put them in these tiny boxes? And oh my God, if we eradicate the boxes, holy shit, what are we gonna do now? Do you find people get freaked out by this conversation on a corporate level?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, what I say is a lot of individuals, especially in the C-suite, and I will say, you know, white, cisgender male and female identifying they don't know what to say when to say or how to say it and so then they end up not saying anything at all and that's just not acceptable any longer and i think that you will start to see this this evolution within the generations of what you know workplaces need to evolve to and what employees want it's no longer about ping pong tables and free snacks and, you know, a gym. It is about social impact, autonomy, remote working, flexibility, family, work-life balance, and really holding leaders accountable for doing what they say they're going to do. And if they're not doing, if they're not even saying it, they're going to get called out. And right, we see this great resignation, which I was part of it. I was part of voluntarily leaving a six-figure job because I was burnt out and I was sick of banging my head up against the wall. And I wanted to make bigger change and work with individuals who want to do the hard work. And I say, you know, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. And so if you want to work with me, you're going to get uncomfortable. But, you know, to to your point, Jason, like... And I always say, like, within the queer community, like, we're constantly having to come out. So people might know me as, oh, this, you know, cis female straight presenting individual with a husband and two children. What they don't know is, you know, I have a girlfriend, a lot, you know, a a four-year partner, you know, and we have broke that mold of what a family looks like. And should I have to tell everyone that I work with that like to prove my queer card that, Oh, well, here's my whole coming out story, you know? And no, I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to do that to prove that I have a level of diversity or that I can teach you something or, you know, who I am as an individual. It's constant. I mean, it goes back to like, putting pictures on the desk and introducing yourself with your pronouns and you know belonging and leading you know a, a DEI program and an LGBTQ plus you know ERG. So yeah, I do think that there is a level of people being uncomfortable. It's also a level sometimes of optics and especially after the murder of George Floyd, a lot of companies Made statements. And then what I encourage people to do is go back to those statements that they made in June of 2020 and let's start measuring where your actions are. You know, they talk about data and metrics and how do we measure whether this is going to be successful or not. And, you know, a lot of companies talk about, like, well, I don't know the return on investment because we can't see, you know, we can't tangibly see. The money coming in from DEI efforts. And it's like, well, yeah, you you really can if you think about retention of your staff and how happy they are and the morale, that's your return on investment, you know, not having to hire and train all of these individuals again, and maybe being like a socially responsible company, right? You know, and so, yeah, I think to kind of circle back the generations i think are going to hold employers more accountable especially with gen z now now in the workforce we have what gen z millennial gen x boomers you know four plus generations in the workplace all have something to offer but based on historical events and how we were brought up very different thinking in some not all but gen z doesn't isn't really going to understand as deeply with the boomers and and vice versa, you know, because of historical events and uh, systems that were built upon our life, you know, within our lives.
2: I want to talk about the distinction, Heidi, between the definition, in your opinion, of course, of allyship versus performative action. And I say this because I recently got a holiday catalog from Amazon. I never got a piece of mail from Amazon in my life. You know, it's like, what's this? And I didn't even realize it was an Amazon catalog until I started leafing through. And it was interesting to observe my internal reaction to this catalog, which is related to my question about allyship versus performative action, because as I'm leafing through, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of different cultural representation here. And there's differently abled people and people of different body types. And I went through and thought, well, this was obviously a very intentional decision on Amazon's part to represent many different types of people. There were same-sex couples in there. I just, I leafed through and at the end of it, I thought, huh. I sat with it like in my body for a second and I thought to myself, I wonder what their actual internal discussions were around this. Was this genuine, heartfelt, we need to make sure we are representing humanity and the diversity of humanity or was it, well, this is going to be good for our bottom line and our stock return. And how do we yes, hold corporations accountable for their stated goals of activism and inclusivity, but discern what's real heartfelt allyship versus, well, we got to do this because the public's demanding it. Like, I'm curious where that line is and how you view that.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because we can go out and Google any organization and find out the good, bad, and ugly. And I think there's you know i don't know without i'm not an expert on amazon's workplace culture but there's been enough in the news and how you know workers are are talking about their pay levels and billionaires going to space and so on and so forth my curiosity with that is who's sitting around the table when they're making those decisions and is it a bunch of white individuals or do you have representation from those communities speaking about what our next toy should look like when it comes to ex community. Because right when I've been in situations where we're talking about, okay, how do we market Hispanic Heritage Month? And I had to call it out on the call to say, I don't know if anybody else noticed this, but we have like eight white cis people on this call. So where's our representation? Because we are not the experts in this area. You know, and you talk about how to empower your employees, staff, get them more engaged. That's a way to get them more engaged. Who cares what their role is? This is their identity. This is their life. This is who they are. These are your customers. Just because somebody works for you doesn't mean they don't buy from you or bank with you. You know, and how are you marketing to some of these individuals and is it authentic? Right. And we can see different companies on, I I believe it was Patagonia. I mean, Patagonia is a great company for their, their mission and giving back, but, you know, I believe they pulled funding from a non-inclusive, I think it was very right-wing conservative organization. I believe with a ski company, I can't like be completely for sure, but that they, you know, it's okay. We're doing business with this. They, this company, they don't align with who we are as a company, our mission, our vision, our values. And when companies stand up and say, no, I'm sorry, but we're not going to do business with you. We're going to put our people over profit. That's allyship. Also, when people are speaking, About individuals that are not in the room. That is a huge allyship move. And it's, you know, you hear terms like mentoring and sponsoring. Mentoring, you're mentoring somebody directly, you're talking with them, you're helping them through their career, whatever in life. Sponsoring is when you are talking about that individual and their work and giving them credit when they are not in the room to elevate their voice and their work so that you can help them move up and forward. And so, right, when I'm speaking about like, hey, we're a bunch of white people, like in the room, what are we doing? Why don't we talk to X, Y, and Z? Or why don't we pull in our multicultural ERG and let's talk to the specific person who leads it? That's, you know, allyship, that's sponsoring and giving opportunities to people that aren't in the room and elevating their voice on behalf of them. So yeah, I think you know I always encourage like look at your small businesses, look at who is supporting your local community, your local organizations. Those are the people that they have a small business, but they're showing up. They're showing up, and and who's giving money to your local schools and your local organizations? That's who we should be supporting. Yeah, and I mean there there's there are there's. Really good, inclusive brands out there. It's a matter of doing your due diligence and looking into like, is it convenient? And no doubt, I am certainly not perfect in this area. And I don't think anyone is, but, you know, doing your research and finding out do I really want to do business with this company if they are so far, you know, misaligned from who I am and what I stand for, my personal values and what i want to teach my children and my family.
1: I'm really glad that you brought this up and i have a specific situation that i'm curious about Heidi because as you were sharing this i was reflecting on how i was working on a project and i was i do a, a lot of independent contract work consulting and this specific project was all about featuring experts in in the health world. And from the very beginning, I encouraged the team that I was consulting for to have some inclusivity in terms of, you know, whatever, just inclusivity, period. Because one thing Jason and I discovered, especially through this podcast, is how there's a lack of diversity in wellness and health. It's so frequently middle-aged white people, cisgendered, straight, there's just... That's the norm. That's the high percentage, at least of people that got exposure. And I don't even remember what the light bulb moment was for us. Perhaps it was George Floyd last year because certainly I dove into a lot more awareness and had to take a look at my own actions in a new way. And then of course, doing this now with gender equality and better understanding things like pronouns. like it's it's an unfolding and like, hey, you know, how can I be a better ally? But what I, str- I struggled in this specific instance I'm bringing up is I, I shared how important that was and I was trying to be proactive and encouraging. And you know I went and researched all different types of people so we could have some non-white people, some differences in age. Like I was just trying to think of every category, presented it to them and it was completely ignored. And they went on and brought in mostly men. All of them were white All of them were about the same age and gosh, I, I think there might've been one woman, but off the top of my head now, I'm not even sure. And I, it's making me wonder like, what could I have done differently and what can I do moving forward? And maybe sometimes I feel uncomfortable because I'm like, well, I fall into those categories. Like I'm a straight, cisgendered white woman in that same age range. Like who am I to speak up for it? You know? And I, maybe that's where I get stuck and I shrink down, and I'm like, well, it's not my place. Like, they're not going to listen to me because it sounds like I'm being a hypocrite or something, right? Like, so what would you advise in those situations, Heidi? Like, how do we really push for something like this when it feels like no one's really listening to us? And then we wonder, at like, least almost like, a, I don't know if it's gaslighting, but it's like suddenly you second guess yourself and like, maybe I'm not the right person to talk about this.
0: Yeah, I, I mean I think it's both gaslighting and imposter syndrome, right? And I think as women, we have that, right? I literally just did a post on like stop calling your women in the office dear, honey, sweetheart, gorgeous. Stop doing that because it is it is diminishing our credibility and our experience and you know, we wouldn't go into the office and call men boys, right? we wouldn't do that. We don't say, Oh, the office dad, like bringing snacks, you know, (laughs) you know, it's constantly like put into these gender roles and you know, it is, it is being a disruptor and going against the grain of, you know, this is hundreds of thousands of years of how systems were built to benefit, you know, White individuals and especially white men at the top. It just is. And there's some people that, there's a lot of people that see it, there's some people that don't. And those, you know, you're not ever going to reach everyone. It's just not possible. But I will say, you know, within my consulting and conversations, I do, depending on the situation, I will pull in like reinforcements or another consultant that maybe I don't have the expertise in that area. And so I will partner with another individual because I do feel that when companies look at this from a DEI lens, that there's not a one-size-fits-all to consultants. There's not a one-size-fits-all to hiring a chief diversity officer. This is a collective, collaborative effort. And how I identify is not how somebody else identifies. And I wouldn't walk into an organization trying to teach Something that I don't know about myself. And so, yeah, a lot of times, right, we as women and just speaking from experience, like we'll back down and, oh, am I really, should I really, is that really the right answer? Do I really, should I really say that? And, right, and two, they're my boss, they hired me, you know, and I, but I think that going in is when you really want to make sure that, like, your values align to this company, which is why I went into business for myself. I want to do business with people that align and want to do the work. And even if you start dropping like little knowledge bombs, little like questions like, okay, who is our customer base? Who are we looking to attract? Have you thought about this? I guarantee that at least like one or two people are going to, that's going to resonate. And if any way that you can find an ally that's at the table, so walking into this consulting meeting that you're talking to all different, and you know that you know sitting across from you are two people that totally agree with you, you need to hook up with those two people so that they can reinforce your message. That's why we need male allies at the table for us women. Because a lot of times women's voices are shut down. Were looked at as can you take the notes, can you bring the snacks, can you clean up after the meeting? No, no, I can't. <laughs> like, and you know, not looked at for our experience. Yeah, and so yeah, it's, it's finding those internal allies for you as well.
1: That is super helpful, and it it's also helping me realize how important this is for me moving forward. To your point. It might support me and really vetting who I'm partnering with to make sure they're in alignment with me too, which sometimes we can get into this scarcity mentality or shrink down and think like, oh, like it doesn't matter, but it does matter to me because I'm at a point where I don't want to be associated with anything that doesn't feel inclusive Because that reflects not just on them, but on me because I'm involved and I don't want people thinking that I'm not advocating for inclusivity. But how would they know that if all they're seeing it was what's presented to them versus what's happening behind the scenes? They're not seeing my emails and our conversations about these things. So it doesn't make sense for me moving forward to be involved with that. And I also don't think it supports me in being the best ally as possible if I'm continuing to be involved with people who aren't prioritizing it. And another follow-up question to that is why do you think that is? Because like when Jason brings up this, this Amazon situation, right, there's there's the side of people that are like maybe coming across performative, but but you're also thinking, well, it might be performative, but it's still really great. You know, like when I see anything like that. As you described in that catalog, Jason, I'm like, this is awesome. Now I can see why you think, well, it's coming from Amazon. So maybe they don't have the best intentions. And Heidi, I'm curious how you feel about that too. It's like, it could be performative, but I still think it's helping. The other side to that question though, is why aren't some people doing anything about it? And they're just continuing going around like without the inclusivity, like how is it that people are still comfortable with not being inclusive and what do you think is stopping them?
0: Yeah. So I want to touch on that. And then I want to go back to your consulting with people. So I think that one, there's, there's fear. There's definitely fear of making a mistake, which people just need to get over it. They need to know that everyone is going to make mistakes. I do this for a living and I make mistakes. Everyone is going to make mistakes. No one is perfect. No one is perfect in life. And it's what we do with that, you know, knowledge that you know being called in to learn something more. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example, like a couple of examples. I thought, and I spoke at a conference, the Out and Equal a Workplace Summit on this, like what is queer enough? And one of my good friends, Black queer female, and we worked, we used to work together and I walked into her office and I was like, we were meeting, you know, for first, second time talking about DEI. And I thought, all right, I am totally, I know it, I know it. I'm walking in, we're going to talk about people of color. What can we do for the BIPOC community? And once I started talking she's like, hold up, that term doesn't work for me. And I was like, Okay you know, can you elaborate a little bit more knowing that I I said, now I know full well, it is not your job to educate me. And so she said, I am a black woman. I am not within. Yes. Like if we're talking about communities of color, we're talking about the Latinx, we're talking about Hmong, Asian, you know, all different kinds of communities. Then yeah. Okay. We're talking about communities of color, but you're talking about a black woman. And I was like, all right, and that honestly strengthened our relationship because we, our friendship is is so much deeper now that we are able to have those conversations. But there wasn't a, you know, a combativeness to it. It was, it came from a place of genuine learning and, and it was a teachable moment. And that's something that I have continued to teach other people now that I know better. You know, another example I had, was helping a client with a job description and we put it out, we said, you know, BIPOC, LGBTQ individuals, et cetera, are encouraged to apply. And one of my, my friends who's a disability consultant reached out to me and said, Hey, listen, like within the differently abled community, a lot of times we get lumped into the word, et cetera. And it's so helpful to be able to call it out and bring awareness to it. And I was like, boom, awesome been using that ever since. And so it's those little moments that, you know, it's how our language shifts. It's, it's inclusion, how we, we help people to be further seen and heard. And I think, right. Yes. To your point, when you like having that visibility, like in a catalog for a child, looking at a magazine that, that shows a Barbie in a wheelchair or a Black baby doll or two, two moms with a family. you know, Yes, representation absolutely matters. My dentist is Black and him and I had a conversation while I'm laying in the chair getting my teeth cleaned. And he's like, parents will bring their children to me because they've never seen a Black dentist before. And they want to... Make sure that they, the children know this is something that they can aspire to be. You can be anything you want to be. And so, yes, that representation absolutely matters. I think the difference is when you're being vocal about what's wrong and right when you are actively and actively using your voice to put people over profit, that's kind of the difference in performative versus... Where are you? Not only giving money, but where are you showing up and showing up using your voice, using your body, using your actions. What are you doing to make a difference in this world? So I think that that's you know one of the differences, and there's probably many, and probably deeper you know experts in this area of consumerism. But I think to to the consulting point too, Whitney is is how are you using your personal brand to attract your clients. And so I think about it because, you know, finding my voice, especially after coming out before I came out, it's kind of like, I'm, I was still a disruptor. I still like pushed against the corporate boundaries, but now I'm like, all right, this is what we need to do for our LGBT+ community. Like you just your voice evolves and the energy changes and you're able to lean into your truth and you just feel like this weight's off your shoulders. And I can really be me more than I was even five years ago. And, you know, so I started putting that out like on my social platforms. And when people hear me speak like that's you, this is me. And so if you go out to LinkedIn, you start reading my posts, you feel that that resonates with you, and you want to do business? Cool. Visit my website because there's no difference in my voice on my website to my LinkedIn because everybody thinks oh LinkedIn is this like professional platform. Which I hate the word professional because who gets to define what professional is? And you know, and so that's you know that's something also that you can build on is like on your website. What do you stand for? What's your inclusion statement? You know, what are your values and do people align? And even during like your intake, you get a feel of whether somebody's like going to do the work or not, or aligning with who you are as an individual or as a business. And if they don't, they see like your brand like that and they're not ready for what I have to say. Like if you can't take that, I'm telling you, don't say, Hey guys to everyone, or don't use the word, my tribe don't do that, then you're probably just not ready for me. Like you got bigger things to worry about than a word, you know?
2: (laughs) Heidi, I love that you brought up my tribe because, okay, I need to take a breath. One thing that I'm noticing as a offshoot of capitalism is how a lot of what I've observed, and I know Whitney has observed, we talked about this, How a lot of not yes, companies, but more so like digital marketers will notice that there is a quote disenfranchised group of people that they somehow identify with and they will sort of find out what those pain points are of this marginalized community of which they're a part of, and I've noticed them leveraging certain language of like, hey, goddesses, hey, tribe, hey, this, you're a disempowered woman, so give me you know $30,000, and I'll invite you into the goddess circle, and then you can feel a part of something. I've just noticed, for me, it's my opinion, a certain sort of manipulation with marketing of... You feel on the outskirts and not included. Hey, there's a whole group of human beings like you. You just need to pay the right amount of money so you'll feel included with this circle of. When you said tribe, it just triggered me, honestly, because I see that and I cringe when I see that terminology. I cringe. And, you know, I've seen. Native American. It's not
1: that far from like guru, too, which is another word that triggers you, Jason.
2: It does, because I feel like there's been a co-opting of language from other cultures that you may not even be a part of where then Native American content creators I've seen on TikTok and Instagram go, please don't use tribe. Please don't use that terminology. It's disrespectful to us. It's not your word don't use it in alignment with, you know, your goddess circle full of cisgendered white single women, you know, just don't do that. And so going back to the power of language and the evolution of language, the word tribe just like brought this monster out in me. It's like, I just see language being used to manipulate and coerce people to feel a sense of belonging. As long as they pay you the right amount of money, then you can belong. And I guess my long question here is like, the role of capitalism, because I don't I don't want to throw capitalism under the bus. I don't think it's fully a bad thing. I do believe late-stage capitalism and some of the tentacles are kind of destroying the fabric of humanity and the planet in a lot of ways. I mean, that's a whole other subject matter. But when we're talking about diversity, inclusion, allyship, what are some ways, Heidi, that you think capitalism could evolve in a more compassionate, honoring, respectful way? Like, if you could just be like, all right, we're going to change the system. Here's how I want to change the system. What are some of those ways you think that we should revise capital? Or maybe do you think we should destroy capitalism altogether? I don't want to assume.
0: Oh, man, that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I just think when it comes to organizations, they have to realize that we're not cogs and wheels. We are not machines. We are people. We are human beings that that have a whole life outside of these four walls within your organization. And I could give my whole life to an organization. And when I leave, they really wouldn't give a shit. They would find somebody else. Somebody else, you're replaceable. You are replaceable. Everyone is replaceable. And companies need to appreciate their employees way more than they do more than a, you know, more than I'm going to throw you a pizza party. Like, who cares about that? Like, but psychological safety and safe spaces and sense of community, those are the things that are going to help you retain individual. And also realizing that like, we're not a singular identity. We come from many different layers, all of you know, different backgrounds, colors, ethnicities, races, religions, you know, gender, non-binary, and really realizing that, like, we want different things. And our sense of belonging is different. And, you know, it, it's little things like when the murder of George Floyd happened, and I reference that because that's, that was like the turn of what a lot of companies were like, oh, shit, like, now we need to do something about it. And, you know, really trying to understand the systemic issues that that have been built upon corporate America, not only corporate, I mean, education, healthcare, instead of getting on the defense, have a natural curiosity to learn. And right, it goes back to like that gaslighting, which my partners will hear more about gaslighting and intersectionality than they probably... (laughs) Want we'll to know, but right? If I tell you what my experience is, don't say that that didn't happen to me. Listen to your employees. I think that's that's the biggest thing. Those are the people that are interacting with your customers. They're on the front line. They're in the weeds. They see things that you don't get to see at your corner office, right? Have that ability to empathize with your workers. Get in the weeds with them you know, who knows if this is a capitalism or what the purpose of it, but remember that show with like undercover boss and, you know, it was like, people saw things, you know, have that curiosity to go and be with your employees more than one 45 minute observation, you know, who's going to, what are you going to be able to tell from that? But stay curious, stay empathetic, like also make those personal connections, we're not just all about work. You know, we have lives, we have families, we enjoy things outside. what do you like to do on the weekends? Like get to know people on a personal level and develop that connection that will increase loyalty on both ends. Right. But right. I think that a lot of organizations are scared to go against their stakeholders, uh, losing money. What if I make a mistake? And, it blows up, you know, your company could go under by saying the wrong thing, but right. That's why you can't be reactive to situations like this. You have to be proactive in your learning. You're constantly learning. And if you do make a mistake then make a public statement and say, I'm sorry, and, and then say what you're doing to be a better person. Right?
1: Yeah. And that point too, though, is tricky because I'm a big advocate for... I don't know how to put this. I'm very triggered, similar to how Jason got triggered by the word tribe. One of my big triggers is shame. It drives me absolutely nuts when people are shaming one another because it's happened to me so much. And I think so many people are afraid of that public shaming. They're afraid to be called out. They're afraid to be canceled. I don't know if people are as worried about being held accountable. There's just like this deep human fear Of being told that you made a mistake and you can't fix it. And I take issue with that because you're absolutely right. It's so important to make mistakes. Everybody has been saying that. And that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned also from the George Floyd situation, which it's just so fascinating how it took him specifically to make this huge shift when like so much of that is constantly happening. It's like, why was it that? I don't know, but I'm very grateful. Sadly, I mean, it's, it's hard to say you're grateful for someone's death, but I'm grateful that at least there was this awakening within myself and many others, but there was also this simultaneous fear of saying the wrong thing. And then I learned through that, that you actually have to just try, because if you don't, if you're silent, then you're part of the problem. So it's like that tricky thing of being terrified of saying the wrong thing. Cause we don't want to be shamed. We don't want to be canceled but we have to just keep experimenting and finding that courage. And then when you also brought up the apology, Heidi, that's tricky too, because people are constantly shamed for not apologizing correctly. And yes. that's so disturbing. And it's like, well, what do you do then? Like, wait, So it's not okay that I made the mistake, but now that I made the mistake, you want me to apologize. But now you're telling me that my apology is not good enough. And so my I'm Absolutely. also being canceled because of my apology. Absolutely. No wonder people are... Are standing still and not doing anything because, like, it all sounds awful. Yeah, yeah, and right—that's where the empathy piece comes in. It's like, come on,
0: you know, it would be one thing if you made the mistake, you didn't, you know, make a an authentic apology, like not just a written PR statement or you know whatever the case is. That hey, I am going to do better, and then okay, okay, well, let me see right? It's the same thing with DEI efforts. It's, you can put out a statement, you can say you're going to do something, you can say diversity matters to us, but what are you, what actionable steps are you doing? And I think a lot of times people think they have to overhaul the whole system. Like, oh my God. I mean, I don't know how many people tell me, I don't even know how to start a DEI strategy. And to that, I'm like, okay, let's break, like, I have programs that, that we break this down into how to develop a DEI strategy because I think on the same hand, people are thinking, well, I need to make change overnight. This is a, I once had a client say, How long is this going to take? <laughs> like, your whole life. It's going to take your whole life, you know? And goes back to like that being that natural, like having that natural curiosity and that, you know, being a, a lifelong learner. And asking questions and learning and not waiting for somebody to present the information to you. Google is your friend. Like, go out and say, Is this term offensive? It'll pop right up with the answer. (laughs) Stay curious with those types of things. If you don't know what to say, Google it. I don't know what to say to my Black employees. It'll come up. They can help you along the way. Hire a consultant, right? Because a lot of times, like, the C-suite, they are expected to be the leaders. They're running an organization. But when it comes to DEI, psychological safety, right? Don't know what to say, when to say, how to say it. They themselves may need a safe space to have a conversation or ask those questions. And, right, that's where inclusive leadership coaching and I work with C-suite leaders to have that space, develop that space to answer those questions. You know, one leader, white cis, males, EO said, I support my LGBTQ plus employees. And but you know, I'm you know, we're not gonna talk about like, well, that's their preference. And I'm like, uh, ah, hold up, like <laughs> that's not a preference. And, you know, he is he's within the boomer generation. Those are the words that he was taught, you know, using the term homosexual. Those are not okay words, right? I mean, language changes and evolves. It's just like re- taking back the word queer and re empowering people to use that term. But just that, that shift in, okay, let me explain to you why that word is triggering for people and harmful to your employees, because me being gay is not a preference, it's my identity. And you can do that in an empathetic and, you know, educational way that doesn't shame him for what he learned, what he's always learned. And he didn't have, he didn't have to ever look at it or learn or, you know, you would think some people, right, you think of like DEI as this big lake. And I am like way in the deep end and I want everybody to come and swim with me in the deep end, but they are way on the shore. And if they come, if I make them come to the deep end, they're going to drown and they're never going to come back. And so I have to go out to them and dip their toe in the water, hold their hand, like tread water, get to the deep end. And sometimes that can be really frustrating and painstaking because we want to make change and we know what needs to happen. but. When you've never been exposed to it, you were raised in, you know, different generation, different systems, like have an unseen or unrecognized privilege. You just don't see it. You know, I felt very seen last night at this event. I was sitting next to a black man. We were in, he, I think he's of Gen X or boomer generation. And we were having a conversation. I was telling him what to do and talking about intersectionality and like feeling seen. And, and he looks at me and he's like, how'd you get to be this way? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, you just, you're so human. And I was like, like, it just gave me goosebumps. I was like, thank you so much for recognizing that. Because I try, I'm not perfect, but being raised to be kind and empathetic and treat people the way they want to be treated, you know, is really important to how my family structure is, how my children are raised, how my children interact with other individuals and that you're raising individuals and kids to be caring adults. Because, right, what we're we're teaching our children is this next generation that can change the world and, and make a a bigger impact. And so, yeah, I mean, right. I didn't know that I was like helping him at that moment. You know, I was just talking about what I do. And so, yeah, I just, I I felt seen, you know, like in that moment. So it was a really cool moment last night.
1: Yeah. And it also reflects on the fact that you're helping so many people, you're raising children and you're helping adults understand these things at the same time. And it's so important because they both need that information, that training. And I think one of the biggest takeaways that I have from everything you shared today is it actually helps us to look back into our childhood experiences. Like when you're bringing up swimming and how delicate that is, it's like riding a bike too. Like, many of us take for granted riding a bike if we know how to do it. But if we go back and remember how awkward and hard and uncomfortable that was, and like your body doesn't know what to do. And so you're falling down and scraping your knees. Like you can think about all of these tough times and there's so many metaphors, even driving a car, right? Like you have to learn how to drive a car and you have to learn so much information, and then all the rules are changing, and they're different from place to place. And so you, you just have to constantly be adjusting. And it also reminds me of like every time I drive past a cop, I worry that I'm going to get pulled over. Even if I'm not doing anything overtly wrong, there's part of me that's like, oh my gosh, am I doing things correctly? And even though that's like a weird paranoia, I feel like it ties in here too, because it's revealing to me that like, even when I'm doing my best, I still might be making a mistake and somebody might have to point it out to me and I have some sort of consequence. and I'm going to learn from that. Right. And when I make those mistakes and pay those consequences, I do better as a result. And it, it sucks in that period of time. Like if we use this metaphor of getting pulled over, like who wants to get a ticket Who wants to feel like that discomfort, pay that bill, go to court or whatever? Like it's a huge inconvenience, but it's such a great learning experience.
0: Yeah, too. I will say on that, because that's a great example of right, something that is our differences is getting pulled over. And how am I teaching my white son what to do when he gets pulled over or if he's, you know, the differences in our black and brown community getting pulled over versus him as a white male getting pulled over. And how can you be an ally? What do you do in these situations, you know, with your, your friends that don't look like you, how do you use your privilege? How do you, you know, be an ally in those situations? And right. There's a commercial, I I forget who the company was, but it was taught, it was a mother speaking to her black daughter and Said, you know, okay, here's what you do when you get pulled over. And she's like, Mom, I'm not going to get pulled over. I'm going to be safe. And she goes, That's not, I know you're going to be safe. That's not what I'm referring to. And, you know, it's those things that, like, right? I'm like you, Whitney. I pass a cop and I'm like, Oh my God, what did I do wrong? Like, Oh my God, I better slow down. But I don't have to think, Am I going to get pulled over for being a white woman just for existing? Uh, no, I, I, that's not my first thought, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Those are the things, right. That we don't have to think about. They just never happen to us. We have that privilege and people, some people think that privilege exists. Some people don't, but I think it, you know, it's, it is from systems that were built to benefit white individuals and yeah. And so those are all little, little things. Like right, you have that conversation with your with your child to say, this is the difference. Doesn't make it right, it's not right, it's totally wrong. But here's where your role comes in if you should witness this. Regardless if you're driving by, regardless if you're with your friends, what do you do in this situation? Because we're not gonna stand around and let it happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Cause that's that's a whole nother level of this is and it ties back into the the theme of this of being a better ally and understanding and knowing not just how to take care of yourself but how to support other people. And it can be so overwhelming sometimes just to take care of ourselves, but I certainly don't want to be a bystander. I mean gosh, there was a a story that I got a glimpse of yesterday. And it seemed like a recent one. I didn't dig further enough into it, but it was a sexual assault on a train in Philadelphia. And I think it might've just happened this week as of the time of recording. And I I was, the big remark was like, people just watched it happen. They literally, some people were recording it with their phones, not because they agreed with what was happening because they didn't know what to do. And people now are so used to getting their phones to document things, but sometimes documenting gets in the way of preventing these horrible things. And we look at, well, this is a a little bit out of ignorance, but you know, George Floyd was documented. and, And I don't know if those people that were documenting his death felt helpless. Like, did they try? Like, what was going on in that moment? But I think you raise this really important point of like, we need to know how not to be bystanders we need to know how to take bigger action and i'm so grateful for all the work that you do heidi and how you speak about this but also how you post online you know that's something i reflect on often is like how can we contribute to educating others and sharing what we're learning and and really like teaching constantly is just a beautiful thing to witness and a beautiful thing to practice and i'm just so grateful that you took the time to come on the show and talk about it and all the different tangents and elements and places that we went today. I love it all. And I, I just feel very happy that you are here because it gets it gets me thinking about a lot about what I can do and how I can adjust, how I can do better. And also finding the courage to make mistakes and not being so afraid of it. This constant Concern about not being good enough and wanting everything to be perfect, that actually just gets in the way. And the next level for that is, I think, speaking out here on this show, but understanding that not everybody is going to have that same perspective. And in fact, I'm going to constantly run into people that don't understand and don't get me and don't agree and, you know, think that you know, I just posted actually last night on TikTok, something about pronouns. It was pronouns day I saw and I it was international pronouns day. Yeah. yeah. And I wouldn't have known that had I not been on TikTok, cause that's not a world that I'm deeply immersed in, although I would like to be more so. And I thought, okay, great. I'm going to go check out who's posting about these hashtags. And they were amazing. Like I love TikTok for this reason and many, many reasons, but just people explaining it and all the different ways that they were sharing. And so on TikTok, you can do this thing called a stitch. And so you can take like a part of somebody's video and then comment on it. It's kind of like a retweet on Twitter with the comments or a share on Facebook, wherever. And I remember posting it and feeling so vulnerable. And that vulnerability was like, did I comment on this quote right? Did I represent what I was trying to say in a clear way? And then also this fear of, are people going to come at me that are not okay with, I mean, like, am I going to get, I don't even know how to put this. It was, it was like the fear of other people's judgments basically. Absolutely. And I just had to find the courage to do it anyways and say like, I might not have done this right or well, and I might be misunderstood and I might be criticized, but like, I'm a little bit more comfortable doing that than not saying anything at all. And that to me is like one of the biggest lessons. And I'm so grateful for you advocating for that and helping me and Jason, but also the listener and everybody else that you touch through your social media. So we will link to all of your social media, including your LinkedIn, which I can't wait to dive deeper into and your website and all the amazing work that you do to help people. And I hope that the listener does take the step of at least following so that you can continue to grow your, you know, educate yourself and grow your awareness around these important topics. So thank you so much, Heidi, for being here today. Yeah. Thank you
0: so much for having me. This was a great discussion. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.